Hi, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And I'm sorry to say, we do not have a new episode for you, per se, this week. Yes, but maybe you haven't heard season four, or maybe you don't remember season four. So we are re-airing a great conversation that we had in season four with Steffi, who um, is a California native, which is appropriate since we're in California right now. That's right. Yeah, we're off uh, traveling the land on a family vacation. So we'll have lots of stories for you about that next time we come back. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode from the archives. When we do come back, we're going to be talking to Chris and Kelsey Wharton of the podcast Matrimony. And that's matrimony, but it looks like matrimony. And the play on words here is due to the fact that this is an awesome podcast where they talk about married life and finances. So every episode you'll hear Chris and Kelsey on their podcast, Love and Matrimony, again, matrimony is the spelling, break down what it is to be married and how to how to sort of plan for a financial future and to live in healthy ways that don't put too much strain on your checkbook and all that. Yeah, and as Chris puts it, they they like to call it voluntary simplicity is their family culture. And they talk about that with us, what that means. And we have been listening to Matrimony since it first started, and we love it. They talk about their actual dollars, how much they budget, how much they make. And they're just super helpful in the tips and tricks that they talk about for living in a way that's frugal, but also um, family-friendly. And yeah, so we, we wanted to bring them on the show and also promote their podcast so take a listen it's called matrimony m-a-t-r-i-m-o-n-e-y and you can check that out wherever you get your podcasts apple podcasts stitcher google play yeah uh, pocket casts <laughs> apple podcast already that was the first one oh, I said. That's of course you have to include okay. apple podcast <laughs> and check out their website um love and matrimony.com matrimony is the spelling yes pronounced matrimony yes <laughs> And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to having Chris and Kelsey on our podcast the next time we air. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Steffi. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with Steffi Bryson, who is a recently hired employee at Uber. Before that, she was working at Google. At both companies, she's done work on privacy and security issues, so we're going to talk about those things. Uh, Steffi got her background in privacy uh, first by studying as a Rhodes Scholar at University of Oxford in England, uh, where she did a master's in international relations, and she's taken that to work at Google for the past couple years and only, as I mentioned, recently moved to Uber. Steffi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, Steffi, I have to admit, I've always had a desire to work at Google because they're always in these lists of the best places to work for. And I've seen the pictures of their amazing gyms that they have or the libraries or just study areas or meditation areas for their employees. And the cafeteria, I, I've heard, is amazing. Yeah, I want to work there just for their food and their, like, fitness time. <laughs> yeah, so, so and I actually went to Google London uh, once and ate in their cafeteria. It was amazing. I have to ask you, working in their Mountain View home campus there, is all this stuff true? Were all those perks as good as everyone says they are? All this stuff is absolutely true. You get very used to it when you work there. So it stops to be this, stops being this thing that's very uh, exciting and, and strange. And you're like, people are cycling by on these Google colored bicycles and getting <laughs> massages. And you get so used wow. to it that you're like, oh, you know, I think I will schedule my massage right now. <laughs> I will so go awesome. get my sushi from the cafeteria. 
And it's like, it's exactly those things. And my favorite story is I watched the internship right before I started Google. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've seen that. <laughs> I wanted to get a sense. And, you know, I know it's very fictionalized, but it really lived up to a lot of the hype. And that the was, best basically, wow. was basically a documentary about working at <laughs> it, Google. It was. There was so much collaboration between Google and the movie producers. A lot of that was actually filmed at Google. And they have this part where, where Sergey Brin, one of the founders in the movie, is um, cycling or walking. I don't know what you call it on that elliptigo the yeah, yeah he has the cameo there thing. yeah and so he's like doing that all over campus and in my second week at google i was on the part of the campus where sergey and larry work and going to a meeting uh in one of those buildings and pulled the door closed behind me and looked and saw sergey brin just go by and he's <laughs> perfect wow that's amazing I, I bet you did a double take to make sure you're not yeah. like, dreaming the internship it was very much like is this real life that's so funny wow and then do they give you time during your day to work out or is that is that just something i heard uh so nobody's dictating your time ever uh and this whole 20% project thing. A lot of that is true for a lot of the engineers that have very structured time and, you know, they set blocks to do this one thing and then they can take their lunch together. So the 20% Um, thing, just to clarify, is where Google lets you spend 20% of your paid time working on personal projects? Yeah, I... A mix of personal and like out there projects, like moonshot so, projects, moonshots or just fun things. My favorite one is there's there were two girls at Google that their 20 percent project was going around to different teams at Google and making YouTube videos about those other teams and what they do. It's called Nat and Lowe. Um, and they're on YouTube and it's great. So like they went to uh, Skybox, which is now Terabella. And talked about how satellites work and are made and are shot into space. It was really, really cool. Oh, that's cool. We'll have to find that and link to it for our listeners. Matt and Lowe? Matt and Lowe, yeah. Okay. And um, so nobody's like saying, yes, now you can go work out. But it's a culture where you're very much like I set up all my meetings. I worked when I was there, I worked a lot with Europe. And so I would usually get into the office by 730 And then at around 2 p.m. wouldn't have as much to do so I could, you know, go to the gym from 2 to 3.30 and nobody would look at you strangely for doing that. Uh, So you can really, you know, determine your time how you want. And those gyms are amazing. They're so nice. And yet here you are an ex-Googler. So I I guess you just decided it was time to move on. Too much free food. (laughs) It was was too cushy. I needed to be battle-tested. Fair enough. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your time at Google. So you mentioned that you focus on privacy and security. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And more specifically, how'd you get interested in this whole intersection? Sure. So I have a long story to tell about how I got interested in it. So I'll try and trim it down <laughs> okay. for the listeners. Um, but when I was in undergrad in 2010, I had a, an internship with the State Department where I was at the U.S. Mission to the European Union in Brussels. And that internship, I was the intern in the executive office, and I helped prepare the ambassador for his daily meetings. And as part of that, I saw over that short little three-month period how many members of the European Parliament he was meeting with. And to me, everything I'd learned in international studies, which is what I was uh, studying in undergrad, told me that the European Parliament shouldn't be uh, an institution that has a lot of power. And uh, so I wondered why the ambassador of the U.S. was meeting with European parliamentarians. 
And it turned out that they were always meeting about privacy issues. This is when they were renegotiating the passenger name records accords, which is the sharing of passenger lists between European and U.S. flights. So and this is for – so yeah, so for airlines for presumably any terrorism purposes? Correct. Uh, and so this was 2010 and they were negotiated um, – this is something that's been uh, under – They've been trading this information for a while, but it became extremely important after September 11th. And the European parliamentarians, there's a group of them that thought that this was a violation of the fundamental human rights of Europeans to have this information shared with the U.S. government. So they were negotiating these uh, these issues and having all these meetings. And so I wanted to dig into that more. And so when I went back to my undergrad institution at Cal State Long Beach, I followed that up and I kept studying it and I followed that through into my master's. Um, and it was all very interestingly timed. And so I left the State Department in December of 2010, two weeks before the initial WikiLeaks of the diplomatic cables happened. Oh, wow. And so that really heightened my interest of what is secrecy? What is privacy? Are those the same or different? What does that mean for a government versus a company? Uh, and I always followed more the government side. And when I went to Oxford, I wanted to study the same thing. And I wanted to study international data protection agreements, particularly between the, the EU and the U.S. Um, for many reasons, the EU is a fascinating political structure. And uh, as I was doing that, I was receiving a lot of pushback from the institutions that uh, saying that, you know, this was Oxford saying this. This is not something that's very interesting for international relations. Uh, the European Union is not the uh, most heavily trafficked area to study in strict IR. And in the summer after my first year there, uh, that was when the Snowden leaks happened. And so that really bolstered my case to say that studying the Internet and studying Internet privacy is something that's important to international relations. And I was able to write my my master's thesis on the politics of privacy, and it was studying under what conditions the agreements that are negotiated between the White House and the European Union uh, are forced into renegotiation. So, and I was hypothesizing the role of the European Parliament. This is all very nerdy and and very in depth, but it's it really started in in 2010 in that internship, and I, I kept following it through. Going back to your time at the State Department, when you left, did people look at you suspiciously when two weeks after you left, all these diplomatic <laughs> cables? <laughs> I definitely got um, a, Like, a oh, Google, Steffi, interesting timing. <laughs> or even with your Oxford professors, did you help Snowden there? Just to... <laughs> no, with the Oxford prof professors, definitely not. But I did get a great uh, chat from my supervisor at the State Department afterwards, and she was like, do you have anything you need to talk about? <laughs> Where have you been, Stevie? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Well, let's uh, let's jump off on that point a little bit. So, I mean, you, you mentioned basically this series of events. I mean, Chelsea Manning's disclosures, Edward Snowden's revelations. They've really jump-started what is, um, I think you'd agree, a certainly overdue conversation on these types of issues, internet, privacy, security, where to, where to strike a balance between privacy and security. How do you think this conversation in society is progressing so far, and where do you see it going in the future? I know that's a huge question, so <laughs> I'm you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it in your lap. <laughs> so it is a huge question. I could go off on on many directions. I think that there are two parts that I probably want to talk about. So and remind me if I go too far off course. I think that there's sure. the immediate aftermath discussion. 
that happened in the wake of the Snowden revelations. And then there's where we are now. And where we are now is a, I think we have progressed in that discussion, um, but in a, in a very different way. So directly after the Snowden revelations, uh, this opened up basically uh, revelations of mass U.S. government surveillance on U.S. citizens and on international citizens. And this was a very interesting time because people were mad about very different things and they didn't quite know what they were supposed to be concerned about um, or what was really appropriate to be concerned about. The most interesting to me was the extreme vitriol that the U.S. government received from German citizens, and and they still largely feel this way. They're very uh, pro-privacy, anti-U.S. government surveillance uh, people, by and large. But they largely opposed the U.S. government's ability to surveil foreign citizens, which is not something I believe is up for contention. International or... um, Intelligence has always been part of uh, the role of governments, and you are by and large allowed to uh, gather intelligence on foreign citizens on their own soil. And many people don't agree with spying, but I don't think that international conventions uh, call this this into question. Uh, what should have made people v- stop in their tracks? Uh, was the mass surveillance on U.S. citizens on U.S. soil by the U.S. government. Because that is where rule of law should come in. That's where you should have uh, judicial oversight, where you should be doing that through things such as uh, wiretaps and other approved conventions that allow for these things under very specific circumstances with specific oversight. And the revelations of of how widespread this was – was extremely interesting and and indeed I think was a bit disturbing. When you dig into it, there are many ways that we can explain this. There are many things that make this not as uh, a huge a deal as it was, um, but the revelations themselves that was that was something that uh, caused shockwaves throughout the world. And the where what was interesting and directly after the revelations was the insane focus on Edward Snowden as a person. And we very quickly stopped talking as uh, in news stories in the media, as society, we stopped talking about what surveillance should, what limits there should be on surveillance, where we should be uh, thinking about privacy on the internet, where we should be thinking about our relationships to governments and what information they can gather from private companies and into where is Edward Snowden, who is Edward Snowden. I think more people could tell you that Edward Snowden was in Hong Kong and now he lives in Russia than they can tell you what the prison program means, or even if they can name the prison program. And that's a very interesting part about our psyche and and the politics of privacy. And I think what's interesting for me for internet privacy is how much of this happens in a virtual world that is not the physical world. And it's very hard to explain to people what goes on when you're sending packages through IP addresses across, you know, what George Bush would call the series of tubes. That's hard for people to picture and therefore very hard for them to grasp in a way that they can um, have policy opinions. It's very much 
surveillance is bad writ large. Right. Well, and the simple fact of the matter is that the the whole legal regime surrounding privacy and data protection wasn't really designed for the digital space. It really was not, especially in the U.S. So the Europeans are upheld as having the most developed um, privacy protections by law. They have an omnibus law, so it covers all things. It covers privacy across the board. And the U.S. has a very sectoral approach. And this is you have privacy for your health information. You have privacy for your telecommunications. But interestingly enough, internet providers, uh, or not internet providers, but internet services such as Google don't fall under telecoms rules. So it's a very underdeveloped state and people don't know what their rights are. And people may tell you that the Fourth Amendment governs this and, and people have a right to privacy. But it's actually not explicitly laid out as such. And what's always been interesting to me between the difference between the U.S. and the EU is what underpins that right to privacy. And in the U.S., it's very much a belief in the citizen's freedom from government intrusion. And in Europe, it's much more a human dignity argument that the government has a responsibility to protect the dignity of an individual. And that's where privacy uh, comes into play. And those are fundamentally different. So which of these aspects of this general larger issue of privacy did you work on at Google? How how did your interest in privacy play into your work there? So at Google, there are uh, a ton of people that work there and a ton of people that work on privacy, whether that's this is as lawyers uh, or as law enforcement liaisons or as public policy people such as myself. And we have a small team or we had a small team at Google um, to cover privacy issues such as transfers of information across uh, countries. And there are issues of um, new privacy laws. So the European Union just passed uh, general data protection regulation, which will update their privacy law. And that was a huge uh, part of the work that we were tracking and, and making sure that we were on board with. Um, and what I covered specifically in that was consumer privacy. So any of Google's products that touched actual people, uh, whether that's Gmail, whether that's Google Photos, whether that's um, Google Apps for Education, I worked on those and figuring out how to make that information um, clear to users, how to make sure that users, we were using the information in ways that users expect, um, and how we can always work to put the user in control of that information and have, have real choices on who gets to see what, when. So the way I'm picturing this is some Google engineer comes to you and says, Hey, Steffi, I figured out a way where we can read Zach's email <laughs> and give him prompts to reply you know, to make it easier on him, he can do an auto reply and he can say, if someone invites him to dinner, <laughs> Zach can respond yes or no, or, you know, no, I don't like salmon. You're talking then, about the inbox smart reply. Yeah, basically. And then I see you going to this engineer and saying, well, wait a minute, can we do this? Does this fit with what Zach thinks we're providing to him in this Gmail service? You know what? It, that's, that's very true. Um, the thing that I would caveat and say is actually more interesting is I thought that that would be a lot of my job going into it. I thought that I would sit there and I would say, you can't use that information for this purpose. Uh, but that's actually already clearly defined. And a lot of my work was making sure that we continued to develop products 
in a way that communicated to users that we weren't doing the things that they most feared. So nobody is actually reading your email. Um, you know, it's, it's robots. It's a machine that, that is analyzing the text of your email. Um, and people, I think, are starting to understand that. What that does mean, though, and this is where the, the valid concerns come in, is that, that in order for the machine to be able to read it, there does have to be access. This can't be encrypted at all times right? Uh, and just for your eyes only, which means that, yes, theoretically, humans at Google could read your email, but that's Google's been totally pilloried in the press for this. So they've gotten on board and they've clearly locked that down. So it's very, very strict access controls on who gets to see what information. And there are tiers of that. So content of communications is hugely protected. It's um, good because if Sally invited me to dinner with her, I wouldn't want a Google engineer showing up and being like, hey, guys, <laughs> totally. let's eat some dinner. I mean, that, <laughs> like, no, this is our dinner. People. You, could, you could probably have a good time. That's probably true, actually. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't mind. Yeah, except if you want to read my email and just meet us for dinner, that's fine. <laughs> but that's definitely the point. I mean, the, there is a, a belief that underpins Google, and I think this really strongly comes from Larry and Sergey, the founders, that information can make our lives so much easier, so much better, and so much more delightful. And they really, truly believe this. And so sometimes they go way too far to left field and you have to pull them back and say, the world's not ready for your idea yet, Larry. Um, but sometimes you have to work with the engineers and say, okay, those, that, those smart replies, I see the use case. I see where that could be super awesome. Here's where I think people won't understand what's happening and will be freaked out by it. So can you, for example, give users a choice of whether or not they use this feature? Can you give users a choice whether or not their emails are even going into this system? What level of control can you provide and how can you surface to that user uh, the fact that this is a machine analyzing the text within a message to, you know, predict a reply? It's funny how different consumers of technology are worried about different things or worried or not worried because when Google or any sort of technology is helpful to me in that way or prompts me in an email or anything like that, I'm just like, this is so nice. How handy. Like Facebook's right? tracking cookies, how, <laughs> how like, you'll be browsing Target.com or something and then you'll go on Facebook and Facebook, Facebook will give you an ad from Target showing you the exact thing that you were just looking at. Yeah, it's like, oh, how how helpful. Oh, it's, it's reminding me that I wanted to buy them. <laughs> yeah, whereas I'm sure there are other people who are like, how did they know this? This is terrible. But I'm just like, yeah, and oh, this is helping me. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and how do you build a product so that you don't cater to the, the group that will never like it? Right, um, right. And without freaking out the large majority of people that could find this super delightful? Um, and that, that was a really fun tension. I have to tell you the, my favorite thing that I learned about the smart reply is that when they were originally training this model to, uh, understand the sentiment of messages in order to do a smart reply, they used Googler emails. So this was emails that Googlers could donate. Uh, so it was the choice of the Googler to say, I have this whole corpus of emails and it's right. fine if you use this to train the model. Oh, that's funny. And when they, they did that, they tested it on a whole bunch of different kinds of emails. And when the model would get confused or it didn't understand what 
the perfect response would be, it would default to I love you. <laughs> I mean, there are worse things to default to. Yeah. Right? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's pretty good. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to go back to this point that you made about the Snowden revelations and how immediately people wanted to just focus on Snowden. Yes. And I think there's a broader conversation to be had here about consumer education. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the way you describe your job as making sure that people were informed of what was happening and their expectations aligned with what was actually... What Google was and was not doing. I mean, how, how do you educate the consumer properly on what's happening when... Really, what has to happen in a lot of those instances, in my experience, has been you write a really, really long acknowledgement of, of privacy. Uh, what are those called? Privacy statements? Agreements or, um, or something? Yeah. yeah, you have privacy to. Privacy policies, privacy statements. Thank you, that. Yeah, you have to write a very long one that's full of legalese, and then the consumer has to click Check through it, basically. <laughs> and then that's. That's what's viewed in at least a a court of law as an educated consumer, but clearly it's not. So sort of how do you bridge that gap and make those expectations actually align with practice? Totally. This is such a fascinating part of the work because you will have uh, people on all, all parts of this spectrum of what they want, what they expect what their current understanding is, especially if you make a change, you need to communicate the change of the data practice to that user. Uh, and many of them have zero appetite to learn that. And right. so I've, I've worked a lot with um, data protection authorities and other regulators that are um, in charge of ensuring consumer privacy. And they often ask for things like, oh, well, couldn't you just put a a privacy disclosure as the, you know, the first line of the app description in the app store, or couldn't you, you know, make a a notice that was like a a always static, always on notice saying that you might be collecting, for example, location information. They have a lot of, right. And so they have a lot of ideas of how these things could be most uh, obvious to the user, but they're not concerned from a product perspective of how user interface. Yeah. Exactly. And there are many users that could care less about these privacy notices. There are many users that would I mean, care I can't tell you how many privacy notices I've clicked through or how many updates to privacy policy statements I've just blown by. Cause I don't, oh, yeah. I don't exactly. read those. Yeah. Same. And it's total like notice fatigue is the other. Oh, problem. absolutely. And so they add, like in the U.S. and in Europe, a lot of the ability of a company to collect and use this information is through consent. And, uh, you know, without going too in the weeds, there was a really important data uh, transfer agreement between the U.S. and the EU that was uh, overthrown last October. And this was called the Safe Harbor. And this allowed U.S. companies to collect European data and transfer it back to the U.S. for processing. Um, And it ensured a sort of semi-adequate standard of protection of that data so that the European data in the U.S. was decently protected. Um, So the interesting part about notice fatigue uh, and and getting consent for things. So companies can uh, put in their, their privacy statements or in their privacy policies, you know, we do, we collect this and this information, we use it for these and these purposes. Uh, you consent to this by clicking, I agree. And there are so many specific instances of that where you should, you would maybe think, oh, well, if I am okay with um, Facebook collecting 
uh, photos from my, my phone when I take photos. So I consent to that data collection and you may not consent to it in another way. It's all very convoluted and, and complex. And, um, there was this transfer agreement, data transfer agreement between the U S and the EU called the safe Harbor. And it was overthrown. It was, um, basically allowing European American companies to, uh, collect information on European citizens and transfer that data to the U S and uh, the it allowed for an equal protection of the law or a, some sort of quasi-equal protection under the law. And in the absence of that agreement, there are a couple ways that companies could still transfer that data. And this is like fundamental to how tech companies work. There are very few companies that have the actual processing uh, on other territories. And so m- much of the data comes back to the U.S. And one of the ways that U.S. companies could still be allowed to do this is if they obtained consent from the end user. And so imagine getting a prompt from a company, a big U.S. tech company, saying, "Do you? is it okay if we take your data and transfer it to the U.S.? <laughs> I don't, that is not one of the elements that I care about when it comes to privacy and protecting my privacy online. Right. It's just very, there's too many questions to ask. And there's a lot of great work that's being done by a ton of people on figuring out how to make these notices and these policies um, most useful to the consumer because in the end they are legal documents and if you um, try and make them user-friendly and end up um, leaving certain key points out even if it's with the intention of making it more understandable you can uh, get in a in a lot of trouble and, and have to pay a lot of money yeah I'm not asking for much I just want these 50 page legal tomes condensed to the size of a tweet. <laughs> exactly. But That's it's all. hard because as a company, you can be, you can be uh, slapped across the face for either having a privacy policy that's too long and people don't know what they're agreeing to or too short and it's not covering you as a right. company. Yeah. There, there's a lot of work that's being done um, to work on privacy in context and, and you know, when would it be correct for you to actually make this decision that regards your privacy and you'll know that uh, if you have an iPhone or if you have a, a phone that's running Android Marshmallow, uh, when you download an app now and the first time you open oh, yeah, that the app, app specific wanna... permissions. Exactly. Yeah. And permissions aren't technically a, a privacy protection, uh, but that is a really great example of, of in context. It's like you don't agree right up front. Yeah, you can have access to the whole phone. But instead, when that app actually needs it, and you can make that decision. Well, and in my experience, too, on Marshmallow especially, uh, it, it allows the company to go back and say, no, actually, you positively affirmed that mm. you wanted this app to share this data. Right. And it allows you to, to change your mind, which is a really important part of the whole privacy and choice discussion. So I want to go back to something that you um, said a several minutes ago. And I think you said that the founders of Google, um, they thought they think that information makes our lives better. And I was wondering if we could just talk about the internet and has, do you think that has made our lives better? Um, and one way that we kind of like to think about that when we, uh, talk to people on vernacular is has, has X made some, made us more or less human. And do you think Mm -hmm. the internet has made us more or less human? Well, I, I'm tempted to bring out my uh, good Oxford education and Oh, ask you totally how should, you... yes. <laughs> so what is your definition of human? So I think that's up for debate. I don't think we, we don't use a dictionary definition of human, but so vernacular here, we call it the podcast on human flourishing because we try to identify those things in human life that 
make life worth living, essentially. And so, I mean, if we're talking about, we, we talk about classical philosophy quite a bit. So um, we're inspired by a lot of Plato and Aristotle. I think we'd probably condense it down to uh, the forms of truth, beauty, and goodness. And so those things that do contribute to truth, beauty, and goodness in the world would be things that would contribute to our human flourishing uh, or our eudaimonia uh, in the Aristotelian sense. And those things that don't simply don't. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a very broad definition that different people are going to interpret in different ways. So I'm just, I'm curious to know if in your idea of what, what it means to be human, what it means to be a human person, how has the internet contributed or not contributed to that positively or negatively? So I think, so I think one, one way to approach this would be to think about whether or not the internet has made us uh, be more true to our nature, uh, whether or not it's made us be able to focus on beauty in a more true way, uh, whether or not it has brought out goodness in humanity. And I has think it made our lives happier, more full. Yeah. Mm. And I think, I think there are cases to be made on both sides. I mean, I think Instagram, for instance, is something that can allow people to appreciate beauty when you're, you know, stuck in a part of the world that doesn't have a lot of natural beauty. You can go on Instagram and look at wonders of the world from someone's photographer or, you know, half a world away. So that, that's a really interesting jumping off point because the, the first thing I want to say is that of course, in many ways, the internet has made the world a better place. And it has made us, in some ways, more human, even if it's a, a sort of mediated humanness, because you're interacting with a screen and, and this technology that is uh, not, you know, skin and bones. Uh, but you have things like Instagram, where I feel like I know your daughter, Esther, uh, even though I've never actually met her and I'm able to, when I live abroad, uh, see and speak to my parents and my friends. Uh, and those are amazing parts of technology that do make the world or at least your world a better place. The thing that's always fascinated me about doing public policy for a tech company is that there are so many ways in which technology hasn't lived up to what many people hoped it would be. And, and the internet in particular, people envision this as a level playing field and they envision this as a place where like-minded people could come together and explore those interests. And we would be much more egalitarian uh, and better people for the fact of the internet. And in many cases, I, we've seen where we've just really been let down and the internet hasn't lived up to those hopes. And these are instances where, you know, comment forums uh, go completely to the most negative and horrible place yeah, ever. Exactly. When you're, when you're allowed anonymity or a pseudonym, you uh, feel free to say whatever it is that is your deepest, darkest truth. Right. Uh, and you have ways in which, even if it's not the intention of it, you have technology that allows people to interact in exactly the way that they would in the real world, which is often unfair. It's often not right. And it's often not uh, the best side of humanity. You can think of things like discrimination. You can think of things like racism. Uh, and these are also reflected in the internet. And I think we're especially let down when the internet reflects those aspects of ourselves back to us because we wanted it to be something so much better. But I think that there are ways that we can also uh, 
make the world a better place and actually learn from the most negative sides to push ourselves to a world that more reflects the, the goals and the dreams that we had for the internet. And one part of that that I find really interesting, an interesting development right now actually is that when we started with the internet, it was a very like chat room focused place. It was very much in a screen and you would sit at a computer and you, we didn't even have laptops when the internet started. So you would sit at a desk and, and you would type on the computer and you would be isolated from everyone around you and you wouldn't go outside. And that's why we uh, at Google came up with things like Google street view. Uh, and then that went into things like, um, I forget what it's called. The, the cultural Institute where yeah, I know if you're you talking can't about travel, you can, you can still go online. You can go to Google and you can see what other parts of the world look like. You can be you on can go inside the world famous art museums. Exactly. You can go through the entire Louvre, I think, and, and see the Mona Lisa, uh, even if you're never able to get there. And that, that is a, a great side of it that we thought, Hey, how can we bring the world to people when they're on the, on their computers? And, and open up the right to travel for so many that uh, all they need is an internet access. They don't need to make thousands of dollars. They don't need to fly to places. Uh, but the interesting switch that we're taking now is the internet is facilitating real world events. So this can be good and bad, but you have companies like uh, Uber that are bringing people together in cars for good and for bad. Um, but you also have things like Pokemon Go, where we used to want to have the most rich maps possible in order to get from point A to point B, and you had to be on a computer in an internet connection. And now that we have the internet uh, so widely available, at least in the U.S., you can go, you know, Pokemon hunting and explore your city and find new Pokemon. I like that answer. <laughs> Well, so Steffi, you were at Google for a couple of years. You just moved to Uber. Let's say we're looking 10 years down the road. Where do you want to be? And how are you going to be trying to make the world a better place through this vision that you just talked about? That's such a good question because I, if you had asked me 10 years ago what I would be doing in 10 years, let's see, I'm 10 years ago, I, I would have told you that I would probably either be a professional surfer or working on interior design for airplanes. Wow, uh, that is quite different. It's very Pretty different. cool things. Yeah. <laughs> to, to that, there's still interests, uh, but they're not... My, my world has changed a lot from that point in my life, and my horizons have been broadened, uh, and I've found new interests, and this interest in internet privacy and thus tech policy, that really started in, as I said, in 2010. So it's only been about six years. And before I left Oxford, I really thought that my goal, ultimate goal was to end up in DC and to be a public servant. Uh, and I still don't really understand how I ended up doing public policy for two private companies. Uh, but here I am and it's fascinating and it's fulfilling and it's challenging. And I can't tell you specifically what I would hope to be doing in 10 years, but I hope that one day I do get back to public service and I hope that I continue to seek out these opportunities that are immensely challenging. Well, I think you should stay in the Valley a little bit longer because I think the tech world needs a few more uh, 
female executives. So stick around there a while longer before you head to DC. <laughs> All right. We'll see. All right. <laughs> Sophie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun yeah, to talk to you. Yeah, been great. And Thank hopefully we can so talk much. to you again soon. All right, Zach and Sally again here. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Steffi from the archives. We, like we mentioned in the beginning, are off in California, but we are very excited to be back next week with a brand new episode of Vernacular. Yes, with Chris and Kelsey Wharton of Matrimony. In the meantime, you should definitely head over to your podcast player, check out their podcast, Matrimony, M-O-N-E-Y. And um, yeah, you can learn all about them before they come on our show next week. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.